Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Helen Scales, marine biologist and a writer. And I'm Shay Rhodes. I'm a journalist and filmmaker. And this... It's Earth Unscrewed. This living planet of ours is just jaw-droppingly amazing. And we're not exactly taking care of it, are we? We've got oceans full of plastic, species dying out at a phenomenal rate. Whole ecosystems being destroyed as we speak. Our daily lives are affecting this incredible place. And I guess the big question is, well, is it too late? We're going to find out a bit more about sustainable projects which could fix problems. And hopefully unscrew the planet. We live in a dangerous time. A new superpower is rising in the Pacific. A country five times larger than North Korea is amassing the greatest chemical threat ever known. Yet its aggressive expansion is being ignored. Governments refuse sanctions. And leading corporations continue to profit from it. The battle for the Pacific has already been lost. But this is just the start. Expanding its borders with the plastics we throw away. It threatens the entire planet. This is wasteland. Well, that was... uh... I don't know, it's part of me that feels like it's a little bit sensationalist, but then <laughs> I think about it, and actually, that is pretty much what's going on. It's just being represented to me as something that is way more dangerous than I realised. Well, absolutely. Well, what we were listening to there was not a campaign against an evil political superpower or an out-of-control dictator, but it's a call to action against what's becoming known as the apocalyptic twin of climate change, and that's plastic pollution. The video was put out by Surfers Against Sewage, a movement fighting to protect oceans and coastlines from the plastic plague. They're talking about something scientists have come to call the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Now, imagine perhaps that you're lucky enough to be on a sailing boat setting off from the coast of California, heading out towards Hawaii. You might imagine that all around you is going to be beautiful, clear blue water as far as the eye can see. But unfortunately, and this is really what the guy who first really discovered this patch, what he saw was just endless bits of plastic.
Now, it's not a solid lump like an island that you could climb out of your boat and walk around on, but it's really much more like a plastic soup. So if you jumped into this part of the Pacific, yeah, you'd be swimming around in just bits of plastic. There would be used toothbrushes and used ear cotton buds floating around all around you. And, you know, it'd be sticking to you and just this kind of persistent stuff will be all around you and the reason it's there is because big ocean currents that spin around the Pacific are basically bringing all of this plastic together and it's not escaping and it's just being concentrated in this one area. Helen, why are you always telling me about really gross stuff at the beginning of these episodes? I don't know. I don't want you to think it's all awful, but, you know, it got your attention, didn't it? I guess, yeah, if the earth <laughs> needs unscrewing, we need to uh, just, just quite summarise exactly how screwed it is. Well, really, I'm telling you about this in particular, because this week we're going to talk about plastic and how it's screwing up the oceans and what we can do about this horrible mess. So we're joined in the studio by two very special guests, the esteemed Dr Lucy Woodall, who's joining us from the Ocean Research and Conservation Group based at the University of Oxford. And Lucy is also Principal Scientist at the Necton Deep Ocean Research Institute. Hi, Lucy. Hello. Great to be here. And also in the studio with us is the equally brilliant Melinda Watson the founder of Raw Foundation, an organisation currently working on a number of projects taking action against plastic pollution. Welcome, Melinda. Thank you so much for having me. And I hear you've already put me to shame this morning by refusing a plastic bottle of water. I did, actually. I'm really sorry about that, but I, I carry my own reusable bottle everywhere. That's, that's, that's fantastic. Nothing to be ashamed of. So, it's um, absolutely great. You know, living, living the message is absolutely, definitely a really absolutely. big part of it. So Lucy and I actually know each other. The ocean world is um, not as big as you might think. And, uh, <laughs> and we have a, a shared love of various things, including seahorses. Yes, we do. Yeah. I do remember seeing brilliant pictures of you going off and diving and finding seahorses around Britain and in various places, which is, which is great. But you're here today to talk to us about the issue of plastic waste. And it's something that you're thinking about quite a lot at the moment. It's an, an area that you're actively studying in Oxford and you've got papers out on marine litter. And, and microplastics and that kind of stuff. So it's something that's kind of invaded your world, really, as a marine biologist, I suppose. Yeah, that's a good characterisation of it, really. Yeah, so uh, microplastics found me rather than me finding <laughs> them. It all resulted from a trip that we made down to the southwest Indian Ocean. We were out at sea for about six weeks and I went out with an aim of getting 120 lumps of mud from the seafloor. And when I was looking under the microscope at the samples, I found small pieces of blue, green, yellow fibres. Didn't really know what they were, so did a bit of research and that's hence how I started looking at microplastics. And that's six years ago now and since have looked at other aspects of marine plastics and litter, yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely find out more about that later. Mm. And Melinda, I'm going to ask you to briefly summarise what the Raw Foundation do you guys work with big business designers consumers is that right exactly particularly young people all mm -hmm. about young people it's their future after all we've been focusing on if you like from the very beginning from the hidden consequences of our everyday stuff so we concentrated on plastic waste because one of the fastest growing waste streams on the planet and yeah this topic of ocean plastics is something that i think we've all come across I mean, if you've ever been to a beach in britain or i guess anywhere pretty much in the world now you'll have come across stuff washed up cotton buds plastic bags it's always there isn't it somewhere on the beach absolutely and it, it almost doesn't matter where you are i was in phuket in thailand just a few months ago obviously big tourist industry 
big sort of incentive to keep the beach clean, you'd have thought, but um, it's not possible really to find a clean beach anywhere. That, in that's the point. It is now everywhere. Mm. You know, raising awareness is really interesting. You have to, if you like, be be present and start seeing the hidden trail of our everyday stuff. But I think what's really important is we have to focus on solutions and hope. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I had a real aha moment recently as well in, in West Africa, in Dakar, in Senegal. And most days for a couple of months, I was either swimming or surfing in the ocean and almost got used to swimming in that plastic soup. At first, it was just disgusting. And I remember feeling kind of... Oh, just sort of almost uh, invaded by this human-made stuff that was floating around. And, you know, I'd think, oh, well, there's a jellyfish over there, and it was always a plastic bag. I would surf, and bits of plastic would get tied around my surf leash, the line that connects my leg to the surfboard, actually, you know, wrap it around and tie itself tight. I had to untie that, and it just showed me that it's, it's certainly in some places the problem is really bad. I'm more of a city boy, so I do less of the less of the paddling in the ocean bit. Um, but I've noticed you see you see plastic everywhere, but you you see the effects of it. It clogs up sewers, it clogs up rivers and streams and, and gutters, and you end up with flooding when there's very little rain, just because there's so much plastic all over the place. And I guess well. Uh, you guys tell me, is that how the plastic ends up in the ocean? Yeah, there's many escape routes. You know, 80% of, of what ends up in our oceans comes from the land. And we're so focused on recycling and plastic bags, if you like. But actually, you know, what we recycle properly is 2%, mm. which is nothing. So it's never going to be a solution. Mm. And of course, your perspective on this is well informed because you've, you've done the research, haven't you? We have. We've been raising awareness for a long time. I set up a foundation in 2010. I've written, you know, about it, materials awareness, if you like, for educators, etc. But what was very important to me was everybody was fantastic research going on for a while in the seas, sieving our seas to find out what's there. But nobody was really tracking the land. And that's where it comes from. So I decided to track plastic waste down through the countries of Africa for two reasons. One, because it's, if you like, the so-called cradle of humanity. And we're our first footprints are and I wanted to look at our plastic footprint there and really identify where was this stuff coming from really and who's to blame. So I set off in Bart from Cairo all the way down to Cape Town through 10 countries following the, the water pretty much all the way and we stopped every 100 kilometres to look at a square metre of plastic either side of the road. Okay. We also dived into, you know, rubbish tips at Cochet or, or the great, you know, places in Cairo, etc. Garbage City, talked to scavengers and really wanted to get stories on the ground and find out what the problems were. But what was very interesting that from the quadrats only mm -hmm. was out of all the waste materials that we surveyed, 95% was plastic. And of that 95%, 98% was single use. Wow. Which absolutely staggered us because the young photographer guy I took with me really got it suddenly I think we were in Khartoum and he said oh my god Mel if there was if there was no single use there'd be no rubbish and I said now you're getting you now you're getting the picture. Now Melinda you and the team at the Royal Foundation are dealing with the issue of plastic pollution in all sorts of ways and one of them is pressuring policy change. Now I was wondering can you tell us a bit more about the kind of things that you've been achieving um, in the policy sphere? Well, I think what's really important now is we held an event in London at the Royal Geographical Society and pulled as many organisations working on similar solutions to really start collaborating. We all have to speak with the same voice now and say the same thing. So not only are we looking at sort of consumer change 
from grassroots level up, but as you say, we're looking at policy level too. Hugo Tagham, wonderful, wonderful guy from Surface Gain Sewage, along with other organisations, have been really calling for a deposit return scheme. Because, yes, we can start saying no to this stuff as consumers... You know, I don't want a plastic straw in my drink, thank you very much. But we've still got all this stuff here that we've got to collect and do something with. So I think the deposit return scheme is absolutely crucial. I think it's fundamental. How does that work? Basically, this can be picked up and and you can get rewarded okay. for taking your bottle back. So instead of, you know, chucking it on the beach or, or whatever, there'll be just sort of areas that you can go and shove it into, uh, you know, more pick-up points, right. if you like. So I, I mean, we've seen already plastic bags here in the UK, the 5p tax, and that's had an incredible impact, I think, hasn't it? It has, but you know what, this drives me wild. Because, you know, Rwanda banned, banned plastic yeah, bags 10 years ago. If you go into Rwanda, and, Ch- and Kenya have done the same, all these you know, African countries are, and, and many others, Chile, for example, they're coastal communities, they're banning plastic cutlery. India is doing great stuff. So actually, we, <laughs> we, we've been dragging our feet a bit. Those of you who are listening at home and feeling inspired to try and do something about this, well, you've just heard Melinda mention Hugo Tagholm from Surfers Against Sewage, and he's going to tell us a little bit more about how you can get involved. I am a surfer for my sins. My favourite beach is a beach called Perranporth in Cornwall. I surf there regularly and I am dismayed at the amount of plastic that I see washing up on the beach. People can join Surfers Against Sewage at one of the thousands of beach cleans that we organise every year. We work with some 50,000 volunteers annually to take direct action on plastic pollution at the beachfront, picking up litter, picking up plastic and recycling that or disposing of it properly. People can also make changes in their own life every day to reduce their plastic footprint. They can refuse to drink water from plastic water bottles and take their refillable. They can refuse plastic bags at the checkout. They can say no to plastic cutlery and straws and stirrers. They can take a refillable coffee cup with them when they're out and about. You can think about it with every single purchase and action you do on a daily basis. And all of that is ultimately protecting our beaches, our ocean, our environment and our city streets. We're seeing a big shift in public awareness, business awareness and political awareness around plastic pollution. It's one of the big global issues just like climate change and it will need big systems change to solve it. As with any change in society and behaviour change, it often takes public disquiet unrest to push politicians to create new legislation to to change how we do things. And we're seeing that now at the moment with things like the microbead ban, the plastic bag charge and hopefully deposit return systems. So society is starting to change and I'm hopeful that we can do much more. So this should be the start of a journey and 2018 could be a catalytic year in the war against plastic pollution. Thank you very much, Hugo. I'd like to bring in Lucy at this point and talk a little bit more about the plastics once they're getting into the oceans. We have a good picture now, I think, of 
how this stuff is getting there. Potentially 8 million tonnes of plastic every year, but maybe it's missing. Maybe that figure isn't enough. I mean, I've heard all sorts of figures like a dump a truck of plastic a minute being dumped in the ocean and that if things continue the way they are, we're looking at two a minute, two dumper trucks a minute by 2030 and four dumper trucks by 2050 or something just mind-boggling and almost just too big to, to really think about. But yeah, once the stuff gets into the ocean, what begins to happen? And we've been hearing, here, certainly here in the UK, quite a lot in the media lately about microplastics and and the impacts of microfibers, that kind of thing in the ocean and the kind of damage that they can cause. So, but maybe Lucy, you could tell us a bit more about those sorts of problems. Yeah, of course. Well, research that I've done and that of colleagues has shown that absolutely microplastics are ubiquitous, but that doesn't give us an excuse not to act. Okay, so that, I think that's the first thing to say, because it could seem just like climate change, like it's too big of a problem. So I think it's incredibly important to say that actually, yes, it is everywhere, but you know what, we can stop it right now. And stopping the sources, stopping it at source is going to be far more valuable to us than trying to pick it up from the ocean. We can't. There is not a mechanism that allows us to move the waste that we have produced that's now gone into the ocean. There's not a way for us to be able to screen that back out again. I mean, you've been finding it in the deepest parts of the ocean. I mean, we should emphasise the depth that so you guys go down to. Well, at least you send down sort of remote things to bring back mud. <laughs> like, this is miles beneath the waves. This is not just a couple of hundred metres. This is kilometres and kilometres, miles. Right, miles. yeah. Two, three kilometres and colleagues have, have done that down to the very deepest parts of our oceans. So I'm going to think this is very far away. You know, I'm incredibly lucky when I go to sea. I'm the first human to ever see that bit of land, if you like, because it's the bottom of the sea, right? And, you know, that's an incredible privilege. But everywhere that we do that, we see litter items. And then when we come back to the lab and look in the sediments, we subsequently see those microplastics. So we can see it in organisms. We can see it ingested. We can see it in multiple different habitats. However, there is still a little bit more research to do on this to understand where those hotspots are, because that, when we can overlay with particular habitats and species will enable us to understand what some of those hotspots of impacts are. Because so, so by the hotspot you mean that there are places where there's just a lot of this plastic getting into ecosystems and we want to understand what kind Absolutely. of Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So for example, if you can imagine in the ocean, we have things called canyons. They're just like river valleys that we get on land and that acts like a conduit um, down to the rest of our oceans. So it's unsurprising that as just like a river would act on land, bringing things down into one place, these canyons do the same thing. So there's some evidence that they are hotspots, but we do need to understand that and say overlay that with the biology to really understand those impacts. Is it getting passed up through ecosystems as well? I mean, is it little creatures are then getting eaten by bigger creatures and we're seeing this kind of building up? Yeah, so that's a really good point. We've heard a lot of the potential for there to be, when we call it as bioaccumulation. We like our long words as scientists, so we have to throw a few in. And bio just means biological accumulation. It means there's mounting degrees. So from our data, we can see that there is a larger amount of um, plastic in larger things. That's probably not surprising. But we don't know the toxic impacts on that. There's lots of feeding experiments, right? You feed your organism some plastic alongside their food. But a lot of the studies that have done that are not representing what we're actually finding out in the environment. When we have plastics in the environment, 
we know that they take up other chemicals. So this is one of the other aspects of microplastics. So it's not necessarily just those physical impacts, because we know that there are physical impacts, like you can imagine if you've got a full stomach full of microplastics, it doesn't matter what size you are, if you're a little worm or a big bird, there's no more room in your stomach for your food. I mean, talking about other animals too, we found it's not just marine animals, is it? It's all wildlife. You know, when we got to Vic Falls, we located, which is always tricky, the rubbish dump behind Vic Falls, where all the tourists don't go, not fenced, not, nothing done with it. It's just getting bigger. And every day, the elephant, the water buffalo and the baboons are there. And literally the day before I got there, they had to shoot two elephant because their stomachs were so compacted with plastic and they were in agony. Yeah, I think that's such a really good point. But there are these chemical impacts. So that could be things like additives that are put into plastics to create the properties that are required for the plastic, or it could be colour. So you've got that aspect. You have the potential for the plastics to pick up other pollutants from the environment. So persistent organic pollutants, for short POPs, plastics also have the potential to pick them up. I mean, they're, they're really persistent ones. It, some of the... Is it flame retardants? Yeah, yes, flame yeah, retardants, etc., which they're finding example. in polar bears in, yeah. in the Arctic. The different types of plastic in the environment, the microplastics, absorb these chemicals in different ways. Um, so it's a really complex situation. Beyond marine life kind of ingesting the plastics, I mean, I, I think of one example in a river in Indonesia where I, I came across huge numbers of fish that were dying simply because there was so much plastic on the top of the river that it was blocking out light and oxygen so they don't even need to in ingest it necessarily for it to cause harm. Yes yeah, so I think one of the things that I'm probably most concerned about is the potential for plastics to be a vector for invasive species. So what I really mean is that you've got your plastic and it's going across the ocean and then it gets colonised, let's say, by some barnacle. There it is, it's hanging out, doing its thing, but as the barnacle is living on the plastic, it's being taken across the currents. It then gets eventually transported to another landmass where it's not native. And that would then be a potential for an invasive species. And that could be something that it doesn't have a predator maybe, or it can outcompete what native species are there. There's lots of different mechanisms behind creating that invasive aspect. I mean, invasive species can be a real problem, can't they? Lionfish in the Caribbean. So there are species that come from the Indian and the Pacific Oceans, these poisonous coral reef fish, and they showed up in the Caribbean. We think they probably escaped, maybe several escaped from aquariums, and now they are pretty much ubiquitous across the Caribbean, and the problem is that they're big predators, and they don't have any predators because it's not their native range. And I guess we've seen this on land too, haven't we? Kind of rabbits in Australia, that kind of thing. So invasive species are a big problem and we have them here in Britain too I guess don't we? Yeah so invasive species what how I think about them is they're changing the food web and that means that they're changing the whole of our ecosystem so it's really sad and it shouldn't happen if we see you know a turtle entwined in some plastic litter but that's one animal maybe it happens to the whole population again not not a good thing but maybe that's one population maybe it's for a whole species which you know we're ramping up our importance sort of on the evolutionary scale but when we think about changes to whole ecosystems 
we've got massive changes there that are going to not only impact that one location, but start to feed further and further out. So I think that thinking about it holistically from that point of view is really important. And I'm going to come back to it again. And I've already said it once, you know, the ocean is such a complex environment. And we're only just beginning to sort of feel underneath and understand some of those complexities and how the ocean is connected. Essentially, it's just one big mass of water. And yes, there are patterns of flow and connectivity but we can't expect to silo ourselves in the world of happiness when we're doing such damaging impacts to the whole of our oceans and i guess climate change probably comes into this too does it i mean again it's another facet of all of the things we have to consider it's definitely making its mark in the oceans too is this compounding the problems of plastic waste in the oceans yeah absolutely so not only as there are multiple impacts on the ocean for climate change. We've got deoxygenation, we've got temperature increase, we've got acidification, and each one of those is a massive issue in itself. Those stresses layer up and layer up, and it's then even more difficult for those habitats to recover. Let's for, say, for example, after a bleaching event where the temperature has gone up in the tropical oceans and corals have expelled their zooanthellae, their little... Um, they're little pieces of algae that help them to live then sometimes they can recover those algae can come back the corals can live again but if they've got the additional stresses of maybe some smothering by plastics as you were describing earlier in the rivers or some other additional problems of invasive species attacking the area then there's less chance of that recovery and we can't think of it as an isolated incident I think that's really important actually Lucy because as many people know is that you know Ellen MacArthur had sort of predicted that by 2050 there's going to be more plastic by weight than fish in the sea as well as that from plastic production is going to contribute to possibly 15% of CO2 emissions. So making the plastic itself is of in itself. Well if, if you're making tons of stuff that's only going to be used and it's so ironic because this this plastic is so durable and we're using it for completely the wrong reasons. So not only is it complete waste of materials, but also, you know, the value of it uh, to, to business. It just doesn't make business sense anymore to make stuff to throw away as fast as possible. So it's really about valuing the plastic because yeah. plastic in itself isn't inherently bad. There's lots of things we can only use plastic for, but maybe we've just gone on our path of loving plastic so much and actually some of the behaviours that we've now got into means we can only use plastic, whereas actually there are plenty of other opportunities for different materials and different ways of behaving to carry out some of those actions that actually plastic we don't need anymore. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Earth Unscrewed. Thanks very much to our guests, Dr Lucy Woodall. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. And Melinda Watson. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Now catch us next time when we'll be looking a little deeper into how to control this apocalyptic twin of climate change, but with a focus on closed loop production. Yep, I'll be meeting some innovators who have begun to see the value in waste. They're spinning chicken feathers and broken fishing nets into golden businesses. That sounds very interesting. Well, to catch that episode and the others in the series, don't forget to subscribe. So until next time, bye. Thanks for listening. Bye. (laughs) 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.